I'm Ruth Sturkey and welcome to Money Expresso, no froth conversations exploring money and life. Money is a story, an energy, a source of happiness and well-being, as well as being a source of fear and anxiety. Many of us struggle to see that money is just a means to an end and that the decisions we make and the habits we build around money can change our life and the lives of others. Why are so many of us inhibited when it comes to talking about money? That's what I'd like to explore. Listen as my guests from all walks of life share their stories and how money has impacted their journey. My hope is these shared experiences will help you think differently about money and ultimately make better money and life decisions. Hello and welcome to episode 30 of Money Expresso. Now, in this episode, I chat to a beautiful guy called Nick Elston. Nick is a mental health advocate, inspirational speaker, and transformational speaking coach. Um, Many of you probably guess that I record my podcasts over Zoom, which I actually did with today's episode. But I also had the absolute pleasure of meeting with Nick at a recent Initiative for Financial Wellbeing conference, where he gave me the biggest bear hug I've ever had. I think, well, probably since my dad. My conversation with Nick is really open. He talks about his childhood obsessive compulsive disorder, which led to a mental health breakdown in adulthood. He explains about the liberation of having nothing to lose and talks openly about his experience and how that enabled him to find community and commonality with those around him. Nick explains how he sees his life in chapters, the circularity of life, and the importance of being properly selfish at times. He also shares his love of country music and puts me right on the spot to name my walk-on song. Let's get right over to Nick. Nick, it's a really warm welcome to Money Expresso. Thank you for joining us. It's lovely to be here. Thank you very much, Ruth. (laughs) Nick, um, I've really been looking forward to our conversation for a few weeks now because I've heard you on uh, a number of other podcasts, actually. So I know we're going to have a good old chat here. Um, But for our listeners who don't know you, um, you're a man of many talents. (laughs) How would you describe yourself and your achievements in a nutshell? <laughs> uh, accidental is probably the, the one that's put it into one word. Anything that I'm doing right now was not done by design. Uh, and I think actually, there's something I think re- kind of a relief in that as well that some of the most exciting things can happen from our biggest adversities. But uh, I, I say, if I had to kind of explain myself in kind of a headline view, I guess I would say I'm an inspirational speaker on the lived experience of mental health. Uh, first question, Ruth. Yes, it is a job. Uh, I promise you it's a job. <laughs> um, uh, and uh, I'm also a transformational speaking coach. So I help people to tell their stories of adversity uh, or or experience. Uh, so it's not presentation skills by any stretch, as you will gather through this recording. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's about how do we start to own our stories as opposed to our stories owning us. And I think there's something hugely transformational in being able to tell our stories from an audience perspective. That's fascinating. And as you, you know, you're just listening to what you you were saying there triggers so many questions in my mind. (laughs) And um, I guess my my first one would be you um, obviously are coming at this from a lived experience of um, mental health issues, um, if that's the right phraseology even. Could you, could you, you, and you said this was accidental. Mm. What happened before you became a mental health uh, advocate and inspirational speaker? 
So I guess the, 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 the real nutshell version is that I had mental illness in my youth. I had obsessive compulsive disorder or OCD, which is much, uh, much commonly known, I guess, but also much trivialized due to things like Channel 4's OCD cleaners uh, or, or I'm yeah. a little bit OCD. It doesn't kind of work that mm. way. But um, so because um, I'm 44 now, uh, don't judge, I've had a hard life. Um, <laughs> <laughs> also a Bristol Rovers fan, which really doesn't help matters. Oh, but, my goodness. <laughs> but back in the day, the, the, the treatment for OCD just wasn't what it would be today. So the awareness, the solutions and everything else. So as I got older, I actually morphed into something which was later diagnosed as generalised anxiety disorder, which statistically is more common but less commonly known. Essentially, you have obsessive-compulsive anxiety. Um, but I guess... What they don't tell you about that is you could be very highly successful and highly performing with high anxiety. Um, and I guess that's what I tried to do as a non-solution focused person working in this space is I focus purely on giving people the reality of what it looks like. So actually they can ask themselves better questions to reach out for help when they need it the most. Because when I, that kind of approach through education, which can be a brutal environment for a young adult with mental illness, um, but also into my corporate life, I was always client facing. Mm -hmm. So that will really resonate with obviously uh, your audience. Mm -hmm. um, there's a heady mix of anxiety, paranoia and kind of sales and partnerships anyway. Mm -hmm. um, but also if I look at my behaviors that I was always in earlier than I had to be, away mm -hmm. later than I needed to be, I was always physically present somewhere, of course, but never truly present anywhere. What I found was that Anxiety was very much regret from the past or fear of the future. Very, very rarely was it today, but we don't focus on today. So the problem is that we, when we run in that state of anxiety for so long, that's where things like burnout kicks in. And it has to be said uh, is the reason why I do so much work in, in the sector that you're in is because actually it's traditionally one of the last bastions of, of, of traditional business in that sense. Whereas um, there's a lot of culture around kind of throwing ourselves into everything with a high level of anxiety, high activity, but you can only run for so long until you stop. And for over a decade, I run at a really high state of burnout. And in 2012, uh, I had a breakdown. And it happened outside of a premier inn in Somerset. Classy guy, eh? <laughs> Choose your breakdowns well. Um, if I knew I was talking about this stuff for a living, I would have got my Hilton or something more exclusive, but it is what it is. Got a deal out of it. But, um, but in all seriousness, that I think kind of when, we, when we're putting on a mask in terms of, of kind of business networking is a great example, actually, that we put on this, this kind of performance of being strong and successful and happy. And we kind of know we're putting on a mask when we leave the audience we're in front of at that time and your just body drops and your, your smile drops and... And you know that you're not living authentically by any stretch. And I think masking behavior is one of the big triggers for me, the big red flags around things like breakdown and, and burnout. But also, the other one is if I ask you to get like your calendar, your diary out now, is there a part of your day-to-day -day and every day that's reserved for you to rest and recover and recharge? And we just don't do that. We don't mm -hmm. prioritize ourselves. Now, let's... Last time I checked with the Halifax, the mortgage doesn't get paid on dreams and missions. So, um, <laughs> sadly, I did check. Um, so if we have to do our work stuff, which we absolutely have to do, but we give away the rest of our time to whoever shouts loudest. And if that's the case, where do we actually feature in our own life? And I think for me, 
that's the biggest impact of poor mental health is how we sacrifice our right to aspire to belong um and it kind of keeps us in a comfort zone and we know comfort zones aren't comfortable mm. and it was at that point really that i i left that hotel i sat in the car and i just couldn't i just shut down it felt like a machine shutting down people think breakdown is a very um angry pursuit it's absolutely not for me it could be i guess but it just felt like a machine shutting down. I lost hope or the hope of something better. I felt that challenges of decades were never going to go away. In reality, I was not doing anything about it. And two weeks later, at this, uh, for three hours, I couldn't drive or do anything in function at all. And then two weeks later, I decided to come back. And I still... <coughs> excuse me, I do apologise. That's to okay. Um, I decided to come back um, to the same meeting and I told people what had happened. And I think there's something liberating when you, not that I recommend to your uh, kind of listeners that you, anyone gets to this point, but there is liberate, liberation to be found when you don't feel that you, you can say something without that fear of being judged. And for me, this was either going to be something that consumed me or I had to let it out. And, and that's what I did. I let it out. And, and I told people in that room what had happened two weeks before I shared about OCD and kids. I shared about mental illness and it was a brain dump. It was cheap therapy, Like literally mm. it's 15 quid, including breakfast. It was cheap <laughs> therapy. Um, and it was at that point really that, that everything changed in my world because firstly, despite what you hear on the news and social media, humans are essentially good. Mm. Humans do essentially want you to succeed. If you only tell them what you need, and by me opening up, um, everyone gave me their support. Everyone gave me a hug, love hugs, missed mm. hugs over the past two weeks, uh, two years. Mm. And I think also, excuse me, <coughs> I do apologise, Ruth. Don't worry. Can you chop that? Absolutely, I'm sure we can. <laughs> but also, the dynamic shifted because suddenly it wasn't about me anymore. It was about everybody else, weirdly. I didn't expect that. What was a really selfish move, and I think everybody in that position should be selfish. We will reach a point in our lives where we need to cross that line ourselves. Nobody will do it for us. What I found was people catching the other side. What I found was that people started sharing their stuff with me, and that's really where it started out. The initiatives and solutions are there, but people are just really scared about engaging in those things, uh, whether that be through education or inspiration or empowerment. And that's really what I wanted to do, focus on that engagement. The room's got bigger and the, and the audience has got bigger and the rest, as they say, is history. Yeah. Well, you know, it obviously has turned out to be life life-changing for you. But when you were talking about, it, it felt to me I had a vision of uh, like a, a train going along the tracks, going along the tracks, and then hitting the buffers when you had your, your breakdown. And you talk about people putting on a performance and masking. Um, did you know you were putting on a performance and masking yourself? I think, great question, by the way. I think that whatever we do in our respective lives, we, our audience does demand a performance. Mm-hmm. 
And I think regardless of what we got going on in the background, that that's kind of what people expect. But I think the, the question I like to ask is, and not just for myself at the time, but also for everybody now, is like, who are you when no one's looking? Mm-hmm. When you've got no one to live up to, when you've got no one to impress, uh, what are you truly about then? And how does your narrative to yourself change as well? And yes. also when you have these kind of these decisions, these points that you go through in life, are you doing these things through compulsion or actually through choice? And for me, that's a really good kind of judgment call on where you are. If you're doing something through compulsion, it absolutely needs to be questioned. Mm-hmm. And I think there's something in that that we very often, not only do we run on habit anyway, I think time is affected by that as well. We found certainly over the past couple of years with lockdown, our relationship with time has gone really weird, hasn't it? Yeah, definitely. And, and there's certainly something in that as well. I think we can start to get into these habits and we start to not question parts of our lives. And I think every, every everything should be open to our own questioning. And I think when we struggle with mental health challenges, then the first thing we sacrifice is choice, how we proactively choose to go into each and every day, fully accepting that we don't live in a Disney movie, mm-hmm. fully accepting that you're going to get blindsided, that stuff's going to happen. For me, the, the difference is knowing your playbook on how you can bounce back as soon as possible. And I think it's that self-awareness piece that I have now that I didn't have then. Mm-hmm. So looking back, it's easier to see the signs but actually, at the moment, no, you just, it's just amazing how much you carry until you can't carry carry mm. that any longer. Mm. You, you see this on a micro level when people go on a holiday. They very often get ill two days after they leave yeah. because as soon as they relax, just the stress comes out. It's amazing how much we can carry without even checking. Yeah, without without a doubt. Um, I've, I've been there myself in the past. Mm. And, and I, I think um, much of, you know, I think about me and my business life and you know we we do play roles don't we in different facets of our life so you know the, we are all whether knowingly or otherwise i think quite performative as you as you say and what i always think is fascinating you mentioned networking which has always been something i've really disliked um, <laughs> probably like most people but i kind of used to um work with it on the basis that you know I, i'll get there early i'll stay for an hour i'll talk to two or three people and then I'll leave. Um, and I think kind of once I set my own boundaries and rules, it became far more manageable than thinking, you know, I'm there for the night. Um, and, and what strikes me is that, you know, w- w- what's curious to me is, you know, is everybody performing all the time? And some of us just cope better with it than others. Well, that's a great question. I think we are really, because it's, I think it's, you know, it's human nature, really, that to, to actually kind of, you, you do, you have extremes, of course, because one of the things that I was really aware of was, was as I said, was masking behaviour. I would try mm. and be what people wanted to see in me. I'd try and be what situations demanded of me, but I sure, sure didn't damn show myself because mm. when we show ourselves, that's when the fear kicks in. But I think especially in professional environments, we, we have the conditioning of what's gone before. And you've seen that even down to the things that people wear. Um, in terms of kind of gone from traditionally suited and booted to that kind of stuff. And so, th- so things are kind of changing uh, along the way. 
but it is a performance. It is part of your brand. It is part of what you do. Mm. So I think we do. I think the difference is you can still be authentic. You can still be vulnerable within that performance. So do I absolutely wake up like hallelujah, this guy's cured every day, 10 out of 10? Absolutely not. Yeah. <laughs> I manage my stuff daily to varying degrees of success. So yeah. by default, that means that when I do reach stages or boardrooms or wherever I'm speaking that day, that means I'm not going to be in, in that kind of position where I'm not going to be like 10 out of 10 ready. That's just, it's kind of not a human thing to be in that space all the time. The difference is how you deal with that. So what I do is to bring people on that journey. So if I'm not feeling life right now, I'll tell people. If I'm anxious, I'll tell people. In fact, one of my earliest stage events was at XL London in front of thousands of accountants. And the first line of my talk was, this is nuts. I'm really anxious right now. Who the hell wouldn't be? I'm just about to bear my soul to thousands of accountants. And that vulnerability, it kind of, so it was a performance by standing up, but that vulnerability actually made it human. And again, despite what we hear on the news, people do want you to succeed. Mm-hmm. And it got a laugh, which is a tough gig with thousands of people. And yeah. um, the second thing was actually that it got everybody to support me as opposed to keeping it in. And I think that's the difference. In a professional environment, we kind of keep our stuff in because we haven't always had the platform to share our personal stuff in any context in a professional capacity. Mm-hmm. It's why people don't engage as much as they should do in workplace kind of employee assistance programs and counselling programs because traditionally we've been taught not to trust work with our personal stuff and it's another barrier to get around. Yeah that's you make a really good point there because um, you know I there's a number of firms offering some really great employee benefit packages for want of a better word as you say ranging from you know medical care Um, employee assistance lines, mental health counsellors, gym memberships. Um, You know, there is really is a whole raft now. And one of the kind of leads me to the question I was going to ask you, which was when you had your breakdown and you went back to that room two weeks later, I think you said. Yeah. That feels to me like an incredibly courageous act. Where did where did that come from? Uh, it's interesting. I've never seen it as courageous, interestingly. Mm. I've never even been asked that. It's a really good question. Thank you, Ruth. Mm. Um, I, I think genuinely it came from I felt that I had nothing to lose. Yeah. Being completely honest with you, I think that, and because I felt like I had nothing to lose, I thought it was going to be like a, death by police kind of blaze of glory moment where I was going to say my bit and then be like an old Western. I'll be started <laughs> on the floor when the dust had settled. But, and that, but that's where it changed. So actually I didn't think that weirdly. I actually found it quite liberating personally, but when the dynamic changed enough for people started sharing their stuff with me and not, not just about mental health, mental illness, about everything else, about sexuality and race and gender and abuse and grief and loss and addiction, all the other things we just don't talk about in a professional environment, Mm. especially in 2012. And people just found community straight away. And I think that, and we've learned this kind of in a really harsh way over the past couple of years, that the the two things that we strive for, even weirdly, I'm an introvert. 
Ruth, surprisingly, <laughs> given what I do, I, I recharge in my own company. I love what I do, yeah. but there's a quiet, dark corner of the world that I sit in afterwards. But mm-hmm. even us introverts have actually found that over the past couple of years, we've missed commonality and community. And and I think it's very appropriate that Mental Health Awareness Week uh, last week, as, as we record this, mm-hmm. um, was around loneliness, actually. So by me going and doing that, actually the fear was kind of not there for sure because of my own reasons but afterwards it just changed the dynamic completely yeah and it just showed me the very human side of things like networking and business generally when all those kind of fronts that we put on and we have an ego to feed and all these kind of different things yeah interesting question thank you Mm, no and not not at all i think i mean you know one of the reasons i ask is i can think of a of a few people in my life where I just wish they would do what you did. I can, mm. I can see the struggle. I can see the difficulty. I can see the armor that they're wearing, the way that they feel they should behave or the old scripts that they're running from many, many moons ago. And going back to what you said, most people are good. I, I feel like, what can I do to help? And it's that um, sense of, helplessness almost when you see somebody that you care very deeply about struggling you know that's really difficult to overcome I just wonder if you had any thoughts or what what are the nudges that I we listeners can 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 use again it's it's a really I love these questions I I get what you mean about rabbit holes now I think about three rabbit holes I can go down (laughs) on this um but I think in terms of people stepping up to tell their story is the reason I run quarterly events called find your voice and we really underestimate the power of having a a trusted room to to share with i always give people the caveat of making stuff up because we go into some really deep exercises but nobody does because once you have the trust and rapport with people they'll share anything and people underestimate what they carry because it's not just about uh kind of people that you care about like you said going and telling their story per se it, it takes a lot of managing your emotional well-being to deliver your story, but it's also not about replaying the story. It's about delivering that from an audience perspective. And once you start to, and I think it's a great exercise for everybody listening to this today, is to start to write the story of your life, but write it from a third-party perspective. What will people learn from your experiences? And when we start to see our own lives like that, it just kind of reframes everything immediately. In terms of having kind of conversations to support others the sad truth is the closer you are to somebody on a personal level the near on impossible it is to help them because the context is different mm. that the if your partner for example gives you some advice it could be great advice but because it comes from them you feel that they've got a different agenda you feel that the context is different the same advice you would take from anybody else you won't take from them and that's the difference we have different contexts with each of our relations yeah. so the closer we are to people we cannot help them in, the, in that in that sense there's i use things called conversational signposting so um i have like at my events i give out handouts and stuff and, and booklets where i just say like leave if, if you've got somebody really close to you struggling just leave this on the coffee table say i saw this big guy with a cap talking about this today what do you think leave it at that yeah. and actually empower as opposed to instruct to change but when it comes to supporting people generally when it comes to mental illness or mental health i think it's recognizing that 
like me, most of the people on the call today on the on the uh, podcast today would be non medical professionals. Mm-hmm. But you will have trust and rapport with people, especially in your industry, that you have the same level of trust and rapport with your clients and your colleagues than they would have with their GP or counsellor, especially nowadays. Mm-hmm. That's actually, quite a cold relationship. So you will have big conversations with people about their challenges. Now, I believe that our sole aim, especially in the UK, our sole aim is to protect ourselves before we protect other people. Now, go with me on this. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to reframe selfish as a really positive thing. <laughs> I, I work globally, and there's a big difference. If I mention the fact that, for example, the whole of last year, I was using counselling and therapy services again, because like a lot of people, actually, you can know this stuff and actually you can still be impacted negatively by challenges. Now, if I mention that to my US audiences, they kind of think, well, so does everybody else, Beardy Boy, get on with it kind of thing. <laughs> um, but in the UK you would have reactions such as this guy's a freak. He's just told us he's in counseling and therapy and he's talking to us about this stuff. Yeah. Now, because generationally and culturally in the UK, we've been brought to believe that self-care is selfish in the worst sense. We'll feel guilty when we put ourselves before anything or anyone. So we don't. So we wonder why our, our kind of main reactions to helping people with mental illness or mental health challenges is either one to fix them so people come to us, we try and fix them, or we keep them at arm's length. Very rarely is it in between, weirdly. So if we're having big conversations with people because they trust you and they have rapport with you, we need to start to manage those better. And one of the ways that I like to do that is to give people a playbook on how to have better conversations around mental health, which starts with the upfront agreement with them, as in something along the lines of, like, thank you so much for sharing that with me. As you know, I'm not a fix. I'm not solution-focused, but I'll listen to you as much as you want to be listened to. I will support you as much as I can, and I'll signpost you to the help that I think would be really good for you right now. Is that okay with you? And just that one upfront agreement on a conversation safeguards them, it safeguards you. You have more conversations with more people, and you sleep well. And I think yeah. we, if we can start to reframe it that way, we can help far more people. Um, than we would by taking that boom and bust mentality of fixing or not. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and that makes such a lot of sense, actually. Be, you know, and, and you're absolutely right. It's often most difficult to talk to those closest to us. Or as you say, you do end up talking to them and they don't, they, they suddenly rehearse what you've said back to them that they've heard from so-and-so. And you're just like, well, I already said that. <laughs> Why, yeah. did you not, why did you not hear me? But, um, but yeah. Yeah, ethically and morally, if I'm raising this stuff with people and I'm not solution focused, I need to be there to to have the conversations, to give them the tools and sometimes the, the inspiration to reach out for help. And that's why I surround myself with a really great network of counsellors and organisations. And I work closely with the NHS and the MOD and all the the kind of the high pressure environments because. Mm-hmm actually lived experience is the, the perfect vehicle to drive engagement to the solutions for because people just don't want to be fixed in that sense yeah a lot of mental health and well-being initiatives are either really dry and heavy and boring and we don't want to engage with it or we have two extremes we have the kind of the one end of well-being where we feel that way where it's very classroom orientated 
you kind of know it's all going to be about nutrition and everything else and everything is a space by the way or on the other end of the scale you have the woo-woo factor where you think you've got to be naked running around a fire with a joystick in your hand kind of thing <laughs> <laughs> but so, like all good things in life ruth somewhere in between is the truth by the way i'm up for a bit of woo-woo at any time but, yeah, and- <laughs> but the point <laughs> is somewhere in between is the truth actually that there's so many things that constitute our, our well-being and um, but i think we've we focus we focus too much on the, I would say, the fluffy side of things, which is why people don't engage. Yeah. And I mean, that's a that's a, a great opener to the topic of financial well-being, which I mm. heard you in conversation with my colleague, Chris Budd, who was on the podcast a, a few episodes ago talking about financial well-being um, and how in the importance of you know, financial well-being, again, is at many different levels, isn't there? And there is the wonderful work that the kind of money and pension service do around debt counselling, trying to help people build an emergency fund, do some budgeting, which is fantastic and much needed. And then we have probably the more fortunate clients who are the likes of um, Paradigm Norton, who sponsor this podcast, the type of clients that we deal with, so people who can afford to take financial planning advice. Mm. But there are still elements of financial well-being that, that, impact, that impact people with little or with people with a lot, or certainly that's how I see it. Would, would you tend to agree that statement? Yeah, I do. I do agree. And I mean, my, my kind of space in the financial well-being kind of um, uh, movement, should we say, mm. um, is, is focusing on that kind of money and mental health thing. I, I find it fascinating why... Um, why somebody who has nothing can be a lot happier than somebody who has everything. Um, I find this very much with being self-employed or an entrepreneur, as it turned out to be in terms of running a company and things that I've, I've, the truth is a lot of people say, oh, I must be so great to do your own thing and have a business and travel all over the world doing this stuff. Yeah, it's great. But the truth is that, there's not one week that goes by. I don't want to press a big red eject button and go back to doing something for something else, somebody else. Because the reality is that I love what I do. Actually, I don't really like the business of what I do. So money doesn't really play a factor. And I find that interesting. I think certainly from a, a money and mental health point of view, that social media fuels a really toxic angle. And I see this very much in terms of relation to the pursuit of happiness. Mm. I think there's a lot of anxiety and a lot of pressure calls by the pursuit of happiness. And we can apply the same logic to our finances and wealth and the, the pursuit of material objects to, to be the well-being boost. It could absolutely work for a very short time, but then you go again, and it's very often then not money that you have, it's credit and stuff. Yeah. So you just see, I see this so much and. And I think it's driven by this this kind of um, I call it the social media factor. It's just it's not just social. It's obviously, it's through the media generally um, that you have this thing where the pursuit of happiness is causing a lot of problems, and that sounds strange to a lot of people because what I mean is that happiness shouldn't be our zero point mm-hmm. because actually we don't live in a Disney movie, and actually to be happy all the time you wouldn't appreciate it. So my zero point actually is peace of mind my after decades of mental illness my zero point just being okay i appreciate the happiness but i also could deal with the the negative stuff a lot better from a money perspective also it means there's pressure on people to have certain things and to do things certain ways and we can't always do that um 
and money is not relative to happiness in any way that I can see. I have the pleasure of working with uh, one-to-one with people that are in kind of celebrity status and people in the public eye. They have the same challenges as, as people that haven't got money as well. In fact, sometimes it's amplified by money. Mm. Um, but also the, as you mentioned, like the, the, the kind of debt stuff that I've done uh, work with people like the Money Charity and, and obviously other organisations in that space as well. That the pursuit of happiness and actually its effects on mental health is very often the, the pursuit of material objects. Mm. We, yeah. we, we feel that we have to have these things. And, and there are organisations that have built a brand on this, that kind of fear of missing out. And yeah. very often, I just think that can change the, our behaviours to an extent that we feel that we're not living our best life if we haven't got the latest phone or the latest thing. And for me, it just doesn't work that way. No, I, I agree. That's a really rambly answer to your question, so I do apologise, Ruth. No, not at all. I mean, you know, I, I absolutely agree. And, it, you know, it, it is that old adage, you know, tr- try telling certain people with no money that it's hard to have money or, you know, that person can have as many worries or money worries as somebody without. And, of course, you know, there is a certain level of money that is needed to, you know, buy, you know, a, a decent life and, and, you know, essentials. But I've also long thought that money has got nothing to do with with happiness and um and and so therefore i guess for me i kind of like think well you know what you know is happiness or is success related to money so mm. i guess my question to you nick is i mean what what does real success look like to you in your life sure i literally take my cap off to you i literally take my cap off to you these are great questions. <laughs> I, I do a lot of interviews, and these are great questions, Ruth. So thank you. Um, and you're really throwing me some spinners here. So I'm pretty- <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> so I, I think what does success look like to me? Success um, is purely related to, to my state, what I call my state. So my peace of mind. And I think after having, for those who have experienced things like obsessive compulsive disorder or generalized anxiety disorder, you'll know that there's a mania involved to that. So if I wake up feeling okay, or if I wake up feeling that kind of peace of mind, or just wake up bored sometimes, that's a really good thing. Mm. Because it means I'm not constantly beating myself up about what's gone. I'm not beating myself up about what's to come. I'm just literally in that space right there feeling okay. And that is success to me. And success is a really subjective term anyway, isn't it, Ruth? I think I've never assigned success to material stuff, weirdly. But that being said, in the spirit of honesty as well, because I have taken that approach, the things, the the material and the commercial stuff has just happened as a byproduct, Mm. which is really interesting, I find. Because what I find is that people, and you see this, especially over the past two years, People, they may have been acting from a position of fear, only focusing on the commercial stuff. And you can kind of understand it for sure. So especially in the freelance or the self-employed community and people that are in and around my space, that they, they've gone, they, they're acting from a position of fear because actually commercial is the biggest driver for them. And I've just, even when that three-month period after March 2020, when everything that I did died overnight because all of my stuff was in person before, I applied the same rules and the same ethos and the same effort for three months and then the tap turned back on um and i think so success to me is is peace of mind 
and also the ability just to to keep on making those marginal gains every day. Um, I, I don't break my life down into aiming for a big goal, for example. I wouldn't know what, what that looks like, but I do break it down into chapters. How will I know when I've reached the end of the next chapter? And that's really important to me. Mm, yeah. So what's in this current chapter for you, Nick? So the um, as part of my, my journey uh, of self-employment now, so this is kind of post um, uh, post-employed uh, life, I worked for Tesco, uh, delivering groceries to the good people of the Southwest for mm-hmm. 36 hours a week in and around launching my own stuff. And for a year, it was a great year. I loved working with them. But for a year, um, I was in this space. Now, I think there's something in there that there's sometimes you're going to be in a place you don't necessarily want to be, but attitude is still everything. And opportunities are always there wherever you are. And what I found was by taking the approach of not not being kind of grumpy because I didn't want to be out on a Sunday morning delivering groceries, having human-to-human conversations. I got five paid events on the back of delivering to lawyers' houses. Um, I submitted an article to the Internal Staff magazine on mental health, which was published. And on the back of the success of that, they put it into the public magazine, and which has a readership of millions. And off the back of that, that's what pushed me into full self-employment back in the day. And I think there's something in that because one of my last days there, I actually was having a really bad day, if I'm honest. It was when they were having the kind of force, uh, the, the gale storms uh, in the Southwest here and a tree fell over in front of the truck. And then in the afternoon, I nearly knocked myself unconscious in somebody's garage beam. I actually burst out crying on the phone with my wife when I said, I'm killing myself doing something I don't want to do long term. Um, and I said, one day, and I was, to be honest, I was, I was proper in a rage. I said, one day I'm going to have Tesco as my client. <laughs> and that, that happened in November last year. Fantastic. I, I delivered Tesco, my newest client. They, um, I went to their Heart Centre, which is their conference hall in um, Welling, and delivered a session. Excuse me. <coughs> uh, delivered a session uh, for them, and there was 128,000 people on that talk. 128,000 people? Crazy. So that was a, a combination of live audiences and beanbacks for all the stores. Crazy. Wow crazy session that was the end of that chapter the next morning I woke up and felt really empty mm. because that's when you know you need to get a new chapter and actually uh, last week was mental health awareness week um, I did 18 engagements in five days which is why my voice is a little bit flaky Goodness. today do apologize um, and the end of the last chapter was actually in that week that I actually delivered a session for Green King and I used to run pubs and clubs for Green King. <laughs> it was at a position where I was not at a good point in my life and they were amazingly supportive. So again, that was another chapter ended. So as you asked me right here, right today, what the next chapter is, currently working on that right now, Ruth, actually. Mm, well, I, I can't wait to see what happens, but I love the, <laughs> I love the circality of the, uh, the, the the Tesco's and the Green King chapters. Yeah, uh, yeah well, um, I'm, well, I'm wondering what the next one can be. Well, what I find is that if you have these emotional connections to, especially to the ch- what I call chapters, so if you have these emotional connections to anything, that's what drives you through. That's yeah. what really it means. It really means something to you. So I really try to keep something which is a real big emotional driver at any one point going on in my life, personally or professionally. 
Yeah, it's really true, isn't it? If you really care about something or something has a really deep meaning, then mm. it, it, it fuels you, doesn't it? Um, Some of my love of country music. Well, I was just going to ask you about that. That is so spooky. I was literally thinking, right, oh, what's the time? We're, we're getting towards the end. But I need to ask you, where? tell me about your love of country music. So I promise you, Ruth, it's not all about losing your dog or your missus. Uh, I promise. <laughs> um, it's, it's a really weird, well, let's say it's weird. My mum was into country music. My dad was into Iron Maiden. So somewhere between the two was my upbringing. Um, but in terms of country music, it just means something to me. There's there's a big storytelling element. Mm. And I think that's why it really resonates with me. And it was reinforced by, I spent time in Nashville and uh, a lot of time around that kind of music scene. I love it. It's, it's just an amazing thing. Yeah. And it really drives me. And uh, for anybody that comes to my events or... Is, it runs through everything that I'm about because of that emotional connection. Um, so, but music is, for anybody is such a big driver. It can change your state instantly. Yeah. Um, it can raise your game almost immediately. Um, if you're like Morrissey and the Smiths, it works the other way as well. <laughs> can bring you right down. But yeah, music is huge, and I think yeah. more people should use it. I, I use it in all of my workshops, and I think it's so powerful. People connect to it. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. It, it, you know, it's if uh, if I'm feeling down, my normal go-to is erasure, to be perfectly honest. But I do love a bit of country. Very my dad, cool. My dad was really into Johnny Cash and, uh, you know, you can't beat a bit of Johnny Cash, can you? Absolutely. So I'm going <laughs> to ask you a question now then, Ruth. Go on. So I am now the MC, uh, MC of the O2 Arena in London. 20,000 people paid their hard-earned money to come and hear you do your thing, Ruth. They're just about to call you to the stage. You're sat back in the green room. And your walk-on music kicks in. That song that motivates you, that lifts you, that gets you at peak state. As everybody is standing up, cheering your name, what would your walk-on music be? God, blimey. You really have put me on the spot here. <laughs> and um, I'm sure I can I can think of another one if I had more time. But I think I am. it, it could be I am what I am. Oh, tune, yeah. It's a little bit cliche, isn't it, to be perfectly honest? But uh, you, you did say that. I ask that question a lot. It's the first time that's been given. So really? well done. Mm, yeah. Interesting. Nice. Yeah, it's a great question. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> Thank you for the switch. I love it. Um, <laughs> now we're getting towards the end here, Nick. And I, uh, I, I've got two questions that I ask all of my guests, um, just as a, as a nice kind of outro. Um, and the first one is... What has been your best buy for under about £30 in the last year or so? Uh, what was it and, uh, and, and why, did it, why did it qualify as being your best buy? Okay, so I'm, uh, I'm a gamer. I, I, I like gaming. Um, and for the first, in the main 14 months of, of lockdown, I was shielded due to a heart condition. So... Uh, apart from a few weeks in the August where we were all let out for a, for a wild few weeks, um, I found that being kept in the house meant that I really lost that spirit of adventure and discovery and travel and all the other things that I was doing before. So I invested um, around that, that figure in a game called No Man's Sky. Now, No Man's Sky is, uh, gamers will understand this, an open world <laughs> game uh, where you it's basically, it's, procedurally generated so it it's a game that never can be completed um mm -hmm. it's it keeps creating new universes to explore and essentially you go to explore new creatures new uh flora and fauna and new planets and uh it just gave me that feeling of discovery even though i couldn't leave the house at the time and i think actually that probably saved my sanity if i'm, if I'm honest 
God, do you know, I've never actually ever played a computer game. So um, <laughs> you're, you're talking to the uninitiated, but <laughs> just how you explain that, that kind of expansiveness of the game um, sounds phenomenal. I, 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 should, um, I should definitely get somebody to show me how that would work. So thank you for well, that. You're welcome anytime. I've, yeah. got, I've got the old gaming rig set up here. You're welcome anytime. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you. And finally, Nick, um, this is a podcast with a, with a, a, a money thread, I think yeah. it's fair to say. And I always wonder, I think we've all got some money pearls of wisdom that we can pass on to others. Mm. What, what would yours be from your experience and or personally or for what you see around you? Yeah, I, I think I certainly see a lot in, 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 this is kind of going more from a professional, I guess it's professional anger, but with personal mm. roots that, Growing up in a family which we weren't poor, but we also weren't very well off either, that 200 quid to me was a lot of money. Mm. So um, as I got into being kind of freelance and doing what I do now, actually it felt really, really uncomfortable to ask for more than a 200 pound, for example, especially to start with. And I think that I guess the pearl of wisdom would be is, is firstly don't underestimate your value. Um, and also be prepared to evolve your commercial value as well. So things like imposter syndrome can be rife for people that start to charge a fee to do what they do. I think a lot of people understand that. Yeah. But um, if you allow it to evolve and grow with you, actually it becomes a lot more comfortable, but also be prepared to lose in that sense as well. And um, I mean, this taps into something which is deeply personal, but I don't mind sharing with you. So I haven't got, children Mm -hmm. Uh, and my way of creating legacy is by helping other people to try and do what i i do in terms of uh storytelling it and getting their stories out into the world so how this relates to money is actually that i will decline uh bookings if if they haven't got the budget for for where i am right now but I, i then use that opportunity to give other people a leg up that are a bit behind me on their journey so I think what I'm trying to say is that when it comes to this, don't underestimate your value, set a precedent and, and don't necessarily bargain with that precedent. But if there's an out, always create an ecosystem where you help somebody else behind you if there's something that's not for you. Uh, that's brilliant. I love that. And that thing about knowing your own value, I think it's something that many of us struggle for. I have loads of conversations with fellow financial planners um, and um, and and you know just even thinking about it myself you know it's like how do we how do we come up with that figure you know it's really hard thing to do um so i i think that's a really astute thing to notice and i'm yeah i'm sure it's something that you're you're building on all the time but i also really love that idea of giving back or paying it forward whatever the right expression is to those that are on the journey that that you, you can help um it's such an important thing to do and I think there's a real truth in that, that you, the pleasure one gets from helping is, is massive as well. So it's, it ends up being a win-win, I think. It, it does. And I, I think certainly the, the problem I had was the point of comparison. So my point of comparison with, with charging, when I was charging, I mean, when first somebody first asked me, what's your fee? Oh, I kind of panicked and put the phone down. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, um, but um, what I found was my point of comparison was actually it was the, the work I was doing at Tesco or my previous employed life where 
actually um, it, one one speaking engagement nowadays in, in, in where I am right now on my journey, actually, like I said, it just doesn't equate to, it probably equates to a month worth of work of what I was doing before. So yeah. my, point of, my point of comparison was skewed yeah. because I wasn't comparing like for like, but also I wasn't seeing the value that I was delivering to people. All I was seeing was the time. And yeah. and, and like I said, that it's taken a lot of coaching to get to this point. Mm. But like I said, you don't you don't buy the hour, you buy the experience that they've they've had up until that point, the training, the specialism, the skills. Yeah. This is obviously your your industry, you know that more than anybody. They're yeah. not buying your hour, they're buying your specialism. Yeah, very, very true. Very true. Um, Nick, it's been really, really enlightening speaking to you and um I've, flown by Ruth. <laughs> it really has hasn't it it really has and i yeah it's you know the, the work that you're doing is is brilliant um you i think we can all benefit i love the honesty with which you're approaching this and the desire to help others um where can people find you uh, nice and simple just like me uh, <laughs> nickelston.com it's all on there so it's nickelston.com brilliant and I'll, I'll, I'll make, a, make a note of that in the show notes. Um, Nick, thank you ever so much. You've been a fabulous guest and I uh, can't wait for our paths to cross. Absolutely, me too. Thank you, Ruth. Bye, Nick. Cheers. I told you he was a lovely man. Such an open, raw and inspiring story. I also really enjoyed Nick's money pearl of wisdom, that one about knowing your own value and being confident with that and building an ecosystem around you to help others on their journey. Oh, and did you guess my walk-on song? It's always difficult, isn't it, when you put on the spot, but I think I'll go with I am what I am. Now, before you go, let me tell you about my next guest, a man who describes himself as a rugby-loving technology entrepreneur and philanthropist. That man is serial entrepreneur Tom Elubi. Now, Tom, amongst other things, as you'll hear, is the current chair of the Rugby Football Union and the first black man to be the chair of a major sporting association. Our talk is far-ranging, thoughtful and packed with wisdom. You won't want to miss it. I'll see you soon. So that's it for today. I hope you've enjoyed the conversation. If you did, I'd really appreciate if you could take a couple of minutes to go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast platform to subscribe, rate and review Money Expresso. This helps more people find the podcast so we can get more people thinking differently about their money and life. If you've got any thoughts, comments or questions on any of the matters discussed or life and money generally, I'd love to hear from you. You can contact me on Twitter or LinkedIn at Ruth Sturkey. Now, of course, the conversations with my guests are not intended as advice. My intention is merely to share our guests' money and life experiences to entertain, educate and inform you. Any form of investing involves risk and the value of your investments may go down as well as up. So please do speak with a financial planner before making any investments to make sure they're the right ones for you. Thank you.